Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to have you all with us here in the building online. So glad you get to join us on our continued journey through the Bible. When you read the Bible, and we're gonna, as we're doing this year from beginning to end, you find yourself in the midst of some passages that are sometimes challenging. You know, passages that the reader finishes by saying, and they stoned them with stones and burdened them with fire. This is the word of the Lord. That's not the best transition, right, to a peppy sermon about something awesome. But the Lord is awesome, and there's something amazing that we're going to unfold in these particular passages, mostly because they reveal to us a reality about ourselves and about God that invites us towards transformation. So what we've been seeing so far, we've walked through five chapters, sorry, five books of the Bible, the Torah, and we've walked with the children of Israel in one long story from the beginning promise of Abraham through the building of a nation in slavery in Egypt, freeing them from Egypt through mighty works of God's hand, taking them through the wilderness, and after 40 years, giving them the law and the direction and, and displaying the power of God over and over to his people, they find themselves on the edge of the Jordan River, waiting to enter the land of Canaan, the promised land that they've been waiting for for so long. And so begins the book of Joshua. Moses dies, Joshua takes over, and we find ourselves in this amazing, perplexing, challenging reality as Israel steps into the thing they've been waiting to experience and receive from God for so long. And we see at the beginning of the book of Joshua two portraits, two sets of people that are so different from one another and yet point to some amazing things about God that we're going to discover here. We have in one, on one hand, we have, we have Rahab, and she's a Canaanite woman who's a prostitute. So that's one of our portraits. And the other we have is, is Achan. He is a son of Judah. He's part of that special tribe that seems to get a special wink from God or a particular kind of anticipation from the prophecies and one of the largest, the, the largest tribe. And so there's something special about Judah. And, and Achan's part of that special tribe of the people of God that are about to take this land. And so two fundamentally different people. And we're going to look at both of those and contrast the reality of the differences between them and the things they have in common in three different ways. We're going to look at what faithfulness and faithlessness looks like. What faithfulness in Rahab and faithlessness in Achan looks like. Secondly, we're going to look at the impact of both faithfulness and faithlessness in ways that we don't normally. And lastly, we're going to say, how do we live out faithfulness? How do we, as the people of God, live out faithfulness today in the midst of our reality? So that's what we're going to walk through. So let's start by just talking about what does faithfulness and faithlessness look like? Well, there were clear instructions to Jericho, right? Achan was told amongst all the children of Israel, when you go into Jericho, this is the first city that Israel is going to conquer. That when you go in, all of the plunder belongs to me. You shall take all the gold, all the silver, all the bronze, and you're going to put it in the treasury of the Lord because the Lord is the one who's going to bring this victory about for you. I'm going to go and fight. I'm going to do, I'm going to do the whole thing. And so all of it will belong to me on this first and very particular battle of Jericho. Actually, in the, it seems like Joshua says it again right when the walls are about to fall. He says, and just a reminder, as you go in, all of it belongs to the Lord. 
Do not take the devoted things, for they are the Lord's. And yet here we see a diametrically opposed dynamic. Achan, what it looks like to be faithless. Achan says in his confession, which, which I just need to point out, one of the things that I think struck me the most this week is the reality that Achan heard amongst all Israel after the battle of Ai had happened or Ai had happened and, and, and men had died. He heard, listen, someone in the camp has stolen devoted things and tomorrow consecrate yourselves because you're going to have to come forward with it. And he waits. I don't know what your proclivities were. Maybe as you read, you're like, well, I kind of feel bad for Achan. Like he just got carried up in the moment and he had these opportunities to come forward, but instead he tells the story. Having been caught, he tells the story of what unfolded. He said, and this, by the way, this tells us a ton about how it works in our own hearts and minds, right? He says, he says, first I, I, I saw, I, I, I saw these things. And, and, and the, the concept of seeing there is not just like I took a glance and saw these things. No, it's, the, it's in the Hebrew, it's, it's beholding. I, I gazed upon it. Like I, I, I took it in. I, I looked and I looked and I looked and there it was. He says, I saw it. And then he doesn't say directly in the passage, but one of the things we see in Achan is that he, he weighed it. Right? Achan says, I, I, I looked and I saw. What did he see? Well, I, I saw this robe that was from Babylon, from Sinai. I saw this, these 200 shekels, so the, this bar of gold that weighs 50. Like I, I weighed it. I, I got a sense of what its glory was, right? The word for glory is weight, the same idea. That I got a sense that there's this glory available to me right here, and I weighed it, and I, 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 I felt what it could do. I had a sense of its power, of its capability. And all that Joshua had said and all that Achan had heard on the other side of the Jordan suddenly started fading. But um, Keller always uses this illustration of like, it's like when these things happen, it's like the glory of the Lord or the honor of God goes on audio and whatever's in front of us is full video. And so, yeah, there's this sound back here of like, right, I know I want to, I want to honor, I want to honor the Lord, but like I'm seeing this and I'm weighing what it can do and be for me. Whatever glory it can give me, and of course, whatever things we determine are glorious, we want to serve and ultimately we want to worship. And so he says, and so I, I coveted them. I saw them and, I, and I, I weighed the reality. I rolled, I rolled the potential of what this could mean over the palate of my soul and then I wanted them. They became life itself and all other things faded from view and I had to have it for me. It inflamed his heart. He had to have it for his life to matter, for his future to be what he wanted it to be. For him to have weight, he had to have the weight of the thing he'd given weight to. And so he took it. He says, lastly, I, I took it. Which is just the final response of the body to the craving, right? We find ourselves oftentimes when we are, in, we are aching, which we're all aching, 
more often than we'd like to admit. When we're aching, we always come to the, well, this is the choice I made. This is what I ended up doing. This is the, the, this is the action that took place. But, but beforehand, there's all this activity going on in the interior world. The only thing that happens when he takes his hand and takes it is the action of the soul through the body. See, there's a whole set of things going on behind the scenes in Achan. Achan was faithless because he broke faith with the one who had made the promises to him about what was coming for him. He, he lost sight of the honor of God in order to gain his own honor. He felt light, and so he saw something that would make him weighty, and so he went and he grabbed the thing that was light to make him weighty. And of course, it would cost him everything. On the other hand, you have Rahab. Now, I just want to say, we, she could have turned the spies in, you know? I know for those of you who've grown up and you're like, oh, we all know about Rahab, and like she's saved, you know, she hid the, the, the spies, but like, she could have turned them in. Think about it. These are not her people. They're still across the Jordan at this point when, when in, in Joshua chapter 2. They haven't crossed the Jordan yet, so I don't know. Maybe they're not coming. Maybe they're going to turn and go a different direction. These are not her people. She, she has no guarantees about anything here. And yet she moves, not out of self-protection, though with a degree of protection, and takes matters into her own hands. And why? What are the motivations that we see? What's the stuff going on behind Rachel's heart before she goes, hide up here? I'm going to risk hide up here. What, what's going on? But one thing we see is in, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 9, that she knows and, and believes the promise. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now, Israel's been told that God's giving them this land for 40 years, right? And it has come to her through probably potentially some illicit means, but it's come to her somehow that, that this is what God has said to this people and she knows it and believes it. She has little to hang on to, but the faith that is given to her, she believes that it will be given to them. So she knows and believes, but then she, she weighs and rehearses what God has already done. In verse 10, she says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea. She, she's taking into account the reality of the story of what's unfolded so far. She says, I, we've heard about that, and I'm believing it's true. And if it's true of the, of the Red Sea, then it's probably potentially true of the Jordan, which is separating us. And if this is the kind of God, then I want to be on his side. And so she takes refuge in who God is, not just in what she's heard about him but in what, and what he's done, but in the very person of who he is. She says in verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, which hold on to that for a minute, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left anymore because of you. This is just the confession what was going on around her. She says, for... The Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That is, <laughs> that is 
The glory of the Lord shall cover the, 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 the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is, this is the declaration about who God really is. Like, this is the kind of God you have. He is God of God, the real thing. She's doing, she's shemaing. She's, she's going, yeah, he's, there's one God, and he's this God. And he's of head, heaven above and earth beneath. There is nothing that is not his. And so she takes refuge in him. And, and, and what it looks like is her taking risks. But because she's believing this, she takes risks. Risks of rejecting her own, by being rejected by her own people. She chooses the loss of a formal way of life and, and subsistence in response to who God is, in response to the promise God has made, in response to what he has done. To what he's promised, to what he's done, and to who he is. And she says, that's enough for me. I will lose all things for him. For, to be one of his people. Because I know my people and I know what they're about. And, and I know and I believe and I trust. And so she says that she will find rest in grace. Joshua 2, 12 and 13 says... Now then, she's speaking to the, to the uh, spy. She says, now then, please swear to me by the Lord. That's, that's, the, that's the trustworthy piece. Swear to me by the Lord, not by your word. I want to hear that you're swearing by the Lord. That as I have dealt kindly with you, which was my sign, Rahab's sign of her faith, I'm going I'm to deal kindly. I've dealt kindly with you. You also, that you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. One thing that I was struck me is she doesn't go, this isn't fair. Who does this God think he is coming in here and deciding who gets to be alive and dead, who decides who owns the land or what kind of worship is fitting? She doesn't. She goes, it appears that this is justice. If he is the God above and I know what our people are about, we're sacrificing our children, so clearly we got some stuff not in line with who this God is. She says, if he is this God, then, then I'm going to take refuge because what I deserve is death. What we deserve is death, so we're going to take refuge and, be, and find rest in grace. He's going to have to choose to give it to us to deliver our lives from death. She had to be delivered and she knew it. There's no boast or claim about what she deserves. All is grace from the beginning. So we see these two pictures of faithfulness and faithlessness and and one of them knows and believes who God is and, and remembers his promises and and unlikely of unlikely moves towards God as Achan moves away from God. So that's what it looks like. That's the stuff behind the scenes. But, but what's the impact? What's the impact of faithfulness or faithlessness? Well, no doubt there's a personal impact, right, on both Rahab um, in faithfulness and on Achan in faithlessness. But there's, um, there's a particularly noteworthy dynamic that I, I think is super hard for us to see and maybe get our hands around in the kind of a Western context, maybe especially in the U.S., 
we tend to overlook and usually minimize the reality that there is a corporate and, and communal nature to the effect and impact of our faithfulness or our faithlessness. That there's a, there's a communal nature, there's a, there's a communal impact, there's a, there's a community dynamic to whether I live faithfully or live faithlessly. And the contrast is pretty stark. Let's just look at the two. We've got Rahab's faithfulness. She protects the lives of the two disciples at her own risk. That's what faithfulness looks like. Achan's, faithfulness, Achan's faithlessness brings about the death of 36 soldiers at Ai when the Lord does not go with them because of his sin. Rahab's faithfulness, it bolsters, it gives courage to the people of Israel Think about it. She's told these, she's, what did she tell the spies? Hey, when you guys have been showing up, our hearts have melted. Every man warrior is shivering with fear because you're coming. And what do, the, what do the spies do? They take her exact testimony and they bring it to the camp. And the entire community goes, it is as the Lord said. And unlike back in Numbers, if you remember when they were like, they're too big and too strong for us, we can't do this. They're hearing, they're, they're quaking in their boots because of the Lord. You see, her testimony, her declaration of faithfulness brings courage and bolsters the community. But when, when Achan sins before the Lord and the soldiers go up, the small band of soldiers go up to take AI, it's going to be a piece of cake. We just took Jericho, this giant city. The Lord is with us. It's all going to be well. And they get, they get beaten down and they run back. 36 die. And what does it say? says, and the hearts of the people of Israel, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Do you see? Isn't that funny? Exact same language. The, the hearts of the people of Israel, like they melted. They, they recoiled. They were like, oh, oh no, we're, it's going to happen to us. We're never going to be able to move forward. And the very fear that they experienced in numbers returns briefly, but it returns because of the consequence of the communal faithful, faithlessness of Achan. It impacted something more than him. And lastly, you see, Rahab saves her whole family, her father and her mother, her, her sisters and brothers and all who belong to them. Like there's this little band, this little tribe of, 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 of Rahabites that, that, have, that are rescued by Rahab's faithfulness. They should all have been destroyed. She said it herself and they're rescued. But Achan's faithlessness condemns his whole family. All that he has, his livestock, his tents, everything, be burned by fire and covered over with a pile of stone that's so large it'll be there forever. See, the impact of faithlessness, the lies that I think that when I sin privately, it only affects me. The idea that we can keep our secret lives, our secret worlds kind of over here, away from the rest of our lives, is make-believe. Our lives impact other people. We cannot compartmentalize ourselves, especially our sin. It leaks, and eventually it starts having destructive impact all around us. Sin is never private. It's never an isolated affair. It's never what I do affects you. And what you do affects me. Because we said that we're going to belong to one another. 
And of course, the closer you get, the more significant that becomes. But, but that is a profound biblical, communal, global reality that we're kind of just disconnected from oftentimes because we're so individualized. But my, my sin affects you. And your sin affects me. We're bound to one another. We're connected to one another. God is showing his people from the very first moment that they're walking into the promised land is that they are bound to each other, that their lives are interwoven. Which is why 1 Corinthians, Paul says, listen, do you not, he's talking about like this really messy situation in this church, like super messy. And he says, like, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Same exact idea. Just a little bit, and it goes everywhere because it affects the community. Hebrews 12 says, see to it, listen, this is great, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness, make sure that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. That seems like that's all personal. It's to us, right? It's to you. Make sure, hey, no, be, no bitterness, no bitterness, hey, no bitterness. But that's not how it ends. It says, and by it, many become defiled. How, how does this work? Let's use bitterness for an example. Bitterness is oftentimes born out of unforgiveness. If, if you won't forgive someone for, this, for the wrong, the real wrong that they've done against you, over time, bitterness will start to seep into your soul and take all the space possible in your heart. So what happens when bitterness has now taken over, not just a root of bitterness, but now a plant of bitterness, a tree of bitterness, what, what are you gonna, what's going to happen? What's the communal impact? Well, well bitterness is going to usually lead to gossip and, and sometimes slander. Because you're unforgiven, you wouldn't believe what they did. She, no, I can't tell you, but I will. Slander, which leads to untrustworthy relationships. We all know this, but we don't know it, right? If, if I'm like, listen, Eric, have I told you about David? Like, he's a mess. He's such a jerk. Um, what you're going to feel for a second is that, hey, we're on the same team. And like, I think you're safe enough to be able to talk about David. And we it's all agree he is a mess. So, do you know what I mean? But we feel really good. But what did I just do? What does he now know? He knows that I will talk about him, which means I will talk about him. And though now he's on the inside for this moment, he knows that it's not safe anymore. And so suddenly by me having bitterness in my soul about David, now Eric is no longer trustworthy. And so therefore a little bit of cynicism arises and maybe a little bit of distrusting relationships with me. And then of course he goes and tells David and then, well, that's just a mess, right? And then what you have is disunity. You have people being pulled apart of distrust. And that's just from a little bit of unforgiveness in one person's heart. It affects, it just, it creeps, it goes everywhere. This would be true with, I thought about this as it relates to like, like a classic church pastor example is like drunkenness, right? Right, you know, don't drink, don't, don't go with the girls who do. I don't even know that expression, but I hear it, it's out there somewhere. There's a, some kind of a rhyme, I don't know. But like, that's the, 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 the drunkenness is the, is the took, right? 
It, that's, that's the thing. There's stuff behind it. People get drunk for, for reasons that are behind the scenes, right? No one just is like, I feel like I want to be a drunkard. Like that doesn't happen, right? There's things going on. There's, there's glory being sought there. There's, there's something that's being overcome. So that's always the case. There's something on the back end. But when drunkenness becomes a normal part of life, then of course it has forward community impact, right? And it's super easy. We all know it, right? Those of you who grew up with an alcoholic father or mother, like you know the impact. Like it's destructive and it just, and it goes everywhere, it could be violence, it could be withdrawal, it like impacts the family, it impacts their work, it impacts your money, your sense of stability, it just goes everywhere, right? You become the laughing stock of the community. If they're, by all means, if they're a Christian, they're professing Jesus, and they're also, like, it's just a mess, right? So, so that's super easy to see, but, but what about some of the hidden ones, like, like body obsession, like with beauty or with, like, hypochondria? That's kind of a hidden one, right? Like you, you can have a terrible body image and have issues, or you can have a great body image and, and you're still serving it, right? It's still, it's still the thing that you're longing for. It's the weight thing. It's got the weight. So my sin and, me, and I undealt with faithlessness goes everywhere. It's been really sad for me to hear families and friends who are no longer friends and families who can't get along because of this political season we've just had. Like, like really good friends, like ripped apart. Like that's over desire stuff, right? That, that, that something's off on that. Nothing is that pivotal. Which is why God calls the community to take responsibility for it. Which is why it says in verse 25, and all of Israel stoned him with stones. Everyone's taking responsibility for the reality of how it impacted the community so as to protect the community and so as to be a reminder that next time this is the depth and the magnitude of the consequences and cost to a community for when I do my thing by myself. And of course, in the age of tolerance, we're, it's ultimate. I feel like Satan has trained the, like the people of God that it's more loving to let someone do what they want to do than to challenge them and take them on. Like, we're, I think we're so afraid. I think we're so afraid that if we, if we push too hard on someone who is not only bringing death to themselves, but is also scattering it out to the community, that, that they're going to run away from the faith. And you know what? Like, hey, you know, polls say the church is in decline, so let's not lose any. Right? And so we just, we just don't. It's just like, hey, listen, you do you, and like, we'll just kind of keep some distance. But like, ask, this is not what God's showing us here with his people. He's saying, listen, like, we participate in, in protecting and guarding and challenging and exhorting and confronting. One of the questions I asked the community group questions is, what, when was the last time you confronted someone about something you saw in their life? And secondly, when was the last time that you let the people that are near you say, hey, I just want you to know you have permission. Like you see the destructive stuff in my life and like you have an open avenue and an open lane to come and say the things that I don't want to hear or that I need to hear. Rescue me, I don't want to be aching. So the question is, for those of us who be honest with our lives, what's buried in your tent? 
Like, are you on the verge of faithlessness because stuff is already buried there? As I said, I think the tragic reality that Achan had all night long. What do you think was going on in his head? Maybe it was someone else. Maybe I won't be found out. Like, loved ones, the Lord sees you. Like, he sees and knows. The reality of sin is communal, no doubt, but at the end of the day, it destroys relationship with him. So by default, it's going to have broad effect on one another. If I'm mired in guilt and shame, where am I going to go? Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let's bury it in your tent. Well, the impact of faithfulness. On the flip side, we have this corporate nature of faithfulness. And what we see in, in, uh, in Rahab is her declaration of the creed of what we hold to. I don't know if you've been around people in the last bit or recently, maybe people who are doing all the read, they're doing some of the reading of the scriptures and, and they, they find themselves alivened by what they're discovering. Uh, Becky was just, my wife, Becky was telling me about a phone call she had with her good friend Chris up in Omaha and, and Chris and some friends of hers are actually doing the reading program with us because we're friends of ours anyway. Um, so, hey, Chris. Um, and, and one of the cool things about it is that they just kind of like talked about the Bible and about the things God was showing them and how awakened they were becoming to certain aspects of their own heart and, and they were talking about the promises of God and how they've been fulfilled in them and they were talking about the, the works of God that they've seen in their lives and they were talking and sharing with each other about all the, all the, all the things that God is saying about himself and how they can trust in him and like it was buoying, it was bolstering, it was, it was awakening, it was enlivening you have those people in your life? Are, are you that person in your life? One of the reasons why we, this whole series, the whole idea was that we would know and tell God's story is that to just know it is not enough. Like we must participate in the communal impact of what it means to tell each other the story of God. And not just the story of the scriptures, though, yes, but the story that God is writing through the scriptures into our hearts and out into the world. That's, that's the story we're telling, you see. That's a story that God was telling here with Rahab and her faithfulness. And what's amazing, of course, is that there's a communal impact in her faithfulness that goes way beyond anything she had any idea about. The results of her faithfulness is that this, this Canaanite prostitute, which is she's least morally, she's least ethnically, is, is grafted into God's people. She's grafted into the inheritance that was for God's people. And she's grafted into the story in ways that she never, ever would have thought of or known. Hebrews eleven thirty one. this is the, the hall of faith that uh, the book of Hebrews talks about. So it's talking about Abraham and talking about Moses. And it says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab's right there. James 2 says, in all the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. That's what came to her through faithfulness. That's the story that got to be told to a congregation, to a people, but there's more. In the genealogy of Matthew, 
in Matthew of Jesus Christ. It says in verse five, and Salmon the father of Boaz, sorry, and Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Yes, Rahab's faith granted her a grafting access into the line of the king, David, who was the line of Jesus, the Christ. Most unlikely of characters. And her faith became an invitation to all of those who would be on the outside to the, the least and the lost. Who's more least and lost than a Canaanite prostitute in the midst of a conquest? And yet her faith, the gift of God's faith to her awakened her and she moved and became one of the women in, li in the line of the Savior of the world. Like that's the story that God was telling through her faithfulness. What's the story that God wants to tell through your faithfulness? You see, there's this, something being written in you and by you and through you that's supposed to be going out like this so that maybe ages to come or maybe just a generation or two from now, people will tell the stories of the, the way in which your faithfulness impacted generation and family and friends and your work community. Faithfulness matters. So how do we live out faithfulness briefly? Well, I'll give you little red cords on your seats because I want you to hang on to these. Ours is very short, mine are longer. Rahab in faith, she wrapped a cord around the window and she waited. Her faith was trusting that the promise that had been made to her would come true and that she would be rescued. This was the sign. She said, will you give me a sign? And this was the sign. Her wall didn't collapse, that her life was spared, she and all who were with her. What God is doing to us is he's inviting us to say, hey, here's the, here's the red cord of my promise of all my promises, of my, of my grace to you, of my love for you. And, and every time you find yourself in a tent or in a building looking at 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, a tunic, the invitation, yes, to flee, Absolutely. Scripture says multiple times, if you face yourself, find something like that, like, like flee, run away, run away, run away. Like, like, like Joseph did. Like that's, that's great. That's great spiritual counsel, absolutely. But what about when it's difficult or it's, it seems impossible to flee, to remove yourself from the context? The invitation is the same as Rahab's. Like, what's the sign? What, what are you going to wrap around your heart that's going to tell you that this is not the thing that gives you weight? That, Eric, how you lead this morning, how it goes, will not give you weight. Like someone else must give you weight, right? So if you sing a wrong key or, or if you say the wrong words, like, like it is well with your soul. 
because you're loved and like the promises of Jesus about who you are and what's coming to you and the fact that there is no one that can separate you, no one can take you out of his hand, that this morning you woke up as beloved as you were on the worst day and on the best day because of Jesus, like that stuff holds you. You see, that's, that's the rope that holds you. That's the stuff, that's the promise that we must wrap around the moments when when we find ourselves desiring to be faithless, when, when the deep areas of our hearts, when the longing for, for intimacy or to be loved or to be married or to have children or have good children or to have your children come home, to have a meaningful career, to, to not to, to actually achieve something, like those good longings that end up turning into dangerous, faithless movements like Achan, where we give them glory and then pursue them and covet them and take them for ourselves. like. It must be, there must be a sign. There must be a sign for you. It's the only way. You, you won't grit it out. You won't just be like, be more faithful. It won't work. To be faithful, you must have the expulsive power of a greater affection. You must have something you love more. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one that's worthy of being loved more. And the way I know is this right here. Here's the sign. I was born... Jesus said, I came to you, I lived a perfect life, I died, I rose, I ascended. I, I did the full thing for you so that you would know that come what may, the worst decisions you've made and, and the best works you've ever done, that those will never pale in comparison to the reality that you belong to me, that you is well with your soul because of me, and that therefore you can move out with an unreal amount of confidence and faithfulness in everything I call you to. That's real stability. That's what holds us faithful in an unfaithful generation amongst unfaithful people. That we may stand out like the children of Israel were to stand out to all the other nations and have people beg the question, but maybe this morning you're finding yourself, you're like, that's really great, Matt, but like I'm, I'm already under the pile of rocks. Like I'm, I'm in the Valley of Achor and it's already all fallen on me. I've made a mess or, or a series of messes and, and there's just, there's no way. I have good news for you. In the book of Hosea, God speaks to his children, to the people of Israel and he makes this incredible prophecy. He says in Hosea chapter two, he says, after you've run away, after you've played the whore, he literally says, verse 14, he says, therefore behold, I will allure you, O Israel. And hear this over your soul. I will allure you and bring you here, bring, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards. And listen, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Loved ones, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Canaanite prostitutes. Aiken from under the pile. If you're under the pile, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. It's that amazing. Grace is that powerful. Hope exists from under the pile. If you will come to him, that he may bring renewal, restoration, and life to you. That's what he offers you today, tomorrow, for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have not left us to ourselves.
that by your great mercy, you have given us not only promises, but then you've given us the works of Jesus on our behalf to remind us of who you are, that you're a good father, you're one who comes after his people for their good, who rescues us, not because we deserve it, but because of your great mercy so that you may receive the glory, the weight that not only you deserve, but that will satisfy us. So, Lord, we want to be satisfied in your glory, that there may be more of us. So, Lord, would you, by your grace, would you, would you tie the red rope of your promise around our hearts in the areas where, like, we need it most, where we're most faltering, where we're most struggling to believe? Lord, would you allow that sign, that promise to remind us of who you are? I pray this in Christ.